Well, it's great for, for, for me to just come this morning and share with you God's Word. We're in the series of asking this question, how can I know I'm saved if? And this today's uh, is the question of, how can I know I'm saved if I have all this sin? Or if I keep on sinning? And what are we supposed to do with that as we live out this Christian life? And, and on that same end, we're struggling with sin. We're struggling with this thing called sin. And we're not quite sure what we're supposed to do with that. I thought, you know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and I received Jesus Christ, I thought it was all dealt with. And, and we're going to explore that today. And we're going to look through that. And I got to warn you, as I go, um, there's two things you need to know about me. One is I talk really fast. So hopefully you can keep up. And two, I'm going to ask for your participation. Good? All right. Sounds good. All right. And, and you know, for those of you online, you can participate too. You can write things. Is there a chat section? There's no chat section? You can just say it out loud to the people that you're with and, and scream it out the window so your neighbor can hear you too. Um, let's do this. All right. So um, one of the things that I remember growing up, we had in our youth group, we had these things called winter retreats. And we would go off um, to a faraway place for a couple hours and we would spend time with God. I remember one night we were sitting by the uh, the fireplace, guitar came out, and we started singing a song. And it was a song that someone had written uh, within our group, and um, the song lyrics said these words, Why is it so hard to deal with the sin, to draw on God's power within? Why? And I remember sitting there, you know, we were singing this song. It was a familiar song to me at that point, but I took a moment and closed my eyes, and I thought about that. And as I did so, the overwhelming presence of God came upon me, and I was just like, oh, my goodness, I, I don't know why. And I felt devastated. I felt destroyed. I felt like just ruined because of that. How, why? Why is it so hard to deal with sin? Now, I'm going to ask you the question this morning. Does anyone else have that same issue? Why is it so hard to deal with sin? Is that, is that you? This is the class participation part. All right, we're good. We're, we're, with, we're tracking. All right, so <clears throat> this morning as we're talking, I just want to just explore that a little bit more as we look at this idea of sin and what it means for us and how we're supposed to live out our life. As we start, so how can I know I'm really saved if I have all this sin? I'm going to share with you these words here, and we're going to, you're going to participate with me on this one. So I'm going to say to you, a saving grace is a changing grace. All right? So I'm going to say, a saving grace is a? All right, so you're with me. All right. So whenever you hear that, you're going to jump in and help me out with this point today. So what does it mean for you and for me as we live out our discipleship, as we live out our faith? Now, we live in a culture in which things have shifted, things have changed. And so many years ago, many people knew John 3.16. Many of you in this room know John 3.16. Before, many people in, around our communities knew John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it was our wonderful salvation message that we would give to people. Now, culture and times have shifted so much so that our world today doesn't remember John 3.16. You and I remember John 3.16, but our world doesn't remember John 3.16. They remember Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not, lest you be judged, right? And you see how we've shifted. And so there's this great shift that has happened. There are a lot of people who don't know this message of what it means to be saved. And oftentimes if you were to ask a non-churchgoer, you know, are you saved? They would just talk, look at you and go, what are you talking about? Saved from what exactly? And so our, the language has shifted, culture has shifted, and we find ourselves in this gap time in which we're trying to find new ways in which we can dialogue with people about what it means to know Jesus Christ, to come into a relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to start off with another question here this morning. How many of you have ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Now, great. So some of you have heard it. Others, maybe some... Listen, Stockholm Syndrome is not the next TikTok thing, okay? It's not from Ikea. It's not from TikTok. Stockholm Syndrome is this concept that came in 1973 
when a bunch of bank robbers came into a bank in Sweden, in Stockholm, Sweden, and they took people hostage. And it's in this moment that uh, for six days there was a standoff between police and the hostage and the hostage takers. So much so that over time, the hostages developed a liking, a, an affinity towards the hostage takers. So much so that even when police tried to intervene, when government tried to intervene, the hostages fought on behalf of their hostage takers. And even after in the courts, many of the hostages raised money for the defense of the hostage takers. Now, there's a, there's a couple of TV shows going on named the same thing, the Money Heist and Money Heist. One is Korean, one is Spanish. Even Netflix gets the idea of multiculturalism. So you have this kind of storyline in uh, throughout this uh, entire series. And here's the thing. Some of us would look at that and we think, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's kind of stupid. Why would, why would we do that? Why would we, we fall in love with our captors? Why would who, people who are restricting our freedom, who have taken away our freedoms, who are holding us hostage, why would we want to be on their side? Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological response to being held captive. And in fact, this is the same reason why many people who are in abusive situations can't find their way out of it. Whether it's a spouse or a parent, they just, they're just stuck in that relationship because they can't find their way out. And this is the same image and reason why when Israel was released from Egypt in their captivity, many of them wanted to go back. They wanted to go back. Now, what does this mean for you and for me? Well, here's the reality. Sin holds us hostage. Sin holds us hostage in many, many ways. And in fact, as it holds us hostage, one of the challenges with it is the very notion that when we have Jesus Christ and when we have salvation and when we've been saved, we want to go back to our captor, sin. We have an emotional attachment. We have an emotional draw towards it. How many of you have ever thought this? And you don't have to put up your hand because this one's a little bit hard to, to confess. But how many of you have ever looked nostalgically as your life, at your life before sin? Oh, the good old days. You wouldn't believe what I used to do. You wouldn't believe the things. And we almost look at it in a positive light. And there are people also just thinking, you know, when COVID hit and churches, buildings closed, and they were looking for, oh, I don't have to go to a church on Sunday? What does everyone else do? Oh, they get to sleep in, get to go to brunch, get to, you know, lounge around in their PJs with their coffee. And all of a sudden, there's this draw towards that. We're drawn to it. We're just drawn to sin. And many of us live in this day and age of YOLO FOMO, right? YOLO FOMO. You with me? You tracking with me? You know, you only live once, the fear of missing out. Everyone out there gets to have such a great time. What about me? Why, why can't I go out clubbing at 2 o'clock in the morning, downtown Toronto? Why can't I do that? I miss that. The good old days, even. We're held captive sometimes. We want to go back to our captivity a lot of times. So as we're here this morning, I just want to, as we're examining all of this, we're going to look a bit at what Paul says in Romans. But before that, I just want to need, I need to lay some groundwork. We need to be on the same page with a couple of things. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to lay the groundwork for what is this thing called sin? This three-letter word, this small little word, and yet it has such huge significance. What is sin? What is its solution? How are we going to live in it and with it? So here's the thing. My fear sometimes as a pastor uh, when I was doing church ministry was always that I found that Christians had a tendency to minimize sin. It's not that bad, right? I mean, come on, I'm not as bad as, right? How many of you can, you know, right? We do that, right? 
And so as we minimize it, what we end up doing, not only do we minimize sin, but then we end up minimizing God's great plan for sin, God's great grace that he's given us. So let's start with this. What is sin? Well, here's a few things I want you to consider as we look at this. Sin is this. Sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform with God's character or God's commands. There's an action, there's a behavior that doesn't line up with what God has already said or God has already deemed or commanded. Sin is also this idea of missing the mark. Think of a bullseye. Think of a target right? in, in archery. And sin is the idea you're missing the mark. You're, you're never achieving what you're supposed to be achieving. You're missing. You're constantly falling short of the mark. What is the mark? What is the standard? God's standard is 100% perfection. Anybody here perfect? Exactly. We all miss the mark. And we get that. But sin is also about this. It's about this idea of rebellion and distrust towards God. And the idea of, I am capable for deciding for myself what is right and what is wrong. And that's what sin does. Now, does that sound a little bit familiar to you in our current day and age situation? Hey, you know, well, what's right for you is right for you, but what's right for me may not be what's right for you. Or what's wrong for you is wrong for you, but, you know, let me do me, you do you. Right? And so we live in this day and age, in this culture in which I am deciding for myself what is right and wrong. And where do we get this from? you got to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. What is it? Genesis. You go back to Genesis. God created the world and everything in it and everything was good. He created Adam and Eve. He created a man and woman. And they decided in Genesis 3 for themselves what was right and wrong. And they took of the tree from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And since then, we've been living in this broken state of sin. So I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're sinners. Look at the spouse beside you. Sinner. Look at your parents sitting beside you. Sinner. Look at the child that you gave birth to. Sinner. You know, uh, when I just, you know how people bring you little babies and, oh, look at my baby. It's so cute. Right? And you're like, oh, right? I, sinner. <laughs> you ever stand? I, you know, one of the funny things that I do at weddings, I stand for the bride and groom. Oh, you know, Groom, you look so handsome today. Bride, you look so beautiful today. Sinners. But it's true, right? But we don't like to talk about that. We don't want, you know, we don't want to judge, right? We don't like that idea. But it's true. And we're struggling with this. And so this is the dynamic we have. What a beautiful bride. Sinner. What a wonderful, lovely, cute little child. Sinner. I saw the picture of the baby dedication. You know, the little baby sitting there like that. Oh, sinner. Right? Like it's just, that's what it is. That's what it is. And what are the effects of sin? What are the effects of sin? Well, in Romans 6.23, we know that this, the wages of sin is death, it says there. What we get from sin is death. Now, how does that work out? Well, there's physical death. There's physical deterioration. How many of you woke up this morning and you were like, oh, my back, right? There's physical deterioration. How many of you guys standing during the singing? You're like, oh, my knees are a little bit wobbly and a little bit shaky, Right? You looked in the mirror. Where did that wrinkle come from? Because we are constantly deteriorating. We are physically deteriorating. So that's one of the effects of sin is that we are physically deteriorating. The second effect is how it affects us relationally. This is why relationally we're all a mess as well. I mean, there's violence. There's greed. There's theft. There's hatred. There's lust. There's murder. There's war. The list goes on and on. Why? Because we no longer, with sin, we no longer can view each other as image bearers of God. You were made in the image of God. I was made in the image of God. But for some reason, we can't deal with the relationship anymore because sin breaks that relationship. We're called to be image bearers. We're called to even rule over the earth under the authority of God and, you know, Being green reminds us that we're just not up to snuff on that either. 
And it reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that even creation is groaning because of sin. We also then have a spiritual issue that happens with sin. We have spiritual death where we are separated from a relationship and the presence of God himself. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, the first thing they did, they wanted to hide. And we do the same. When sin enters our life, we want to hide. We want to hide from others. We want to hide from God. And we're just, we're in this broken cycle of this relationship. And not only that, not only do we have this broken relationship with God, we have also this antagonism towards God. We look at God with some kind of, you know, jealousy and disdain. And here's the reality. God is holy. And we have this holy God. And this holy God who in the presence of sin would completely destroy sin in his holiness. And this is why in your Old Testament, they could never see God. They could never be in the presence of God. Because if there was just an, an iota of sin, God's presence would overwhelm and destroy sin. It's part of his quote-unquote wrath of God. It would destroy us. And so we're constantly at odds with God as a result. And this is what sin does. Are you tracking with me? We've got to be on the same page with this thing. Because a lot of times, again, if we're just minimizing sin and we don't really get it, we're in trouble. And you know, back to this idea of judging, you know, judge not lest you be judged. I always think of this in this way. The idea of being grieved with my own sin more than I am grieved with the sin of someone else. It's how Jesus always said, you know what? Don't forget about the big, huge log that's stuck in your eye when you're looking at the speck of dust in someone else's eye, right? And that we would not minimize our sin. We would not minimize sin in general, but we would not minimize our own sin. So what is the solution to all of this sin? And this is the amazing thing. So we know that in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This gift. And what is that gift? In Romans 5.8, it says this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the solution God gives, is Jesus himself. Fully God, fully man, who comes and lives a sinless life, dies on a cross to take the penalty of sin for you and for me. And I love this Romans passage 5.8 because it says, while we were still sinners. There are some of us who have not understood this concept, that while we were still sinners, Christ did this for us. Because here's the thing, some of us are struggling with this. We're trying to earn our way to God. We're hoping that somehow if I do enough good things and if I do enough good things in a good way, I can earn my way to God. I can earn a relationship to God. I can earn my way into heaven. If I perform well, then God will accept me. And some of us even think, you know what? I'm not ready to take the next step in my relationship with God because I need to fix my life first. I need to make sure certain things are are put together. I need to make sure I've got certain things all lined up properly before I can take the next step with God. And the reminder from Romans is this, while you were still a sinner, I'm still a sinner, right? God never said, fix yourself up, then come to me. He said, no, I know. I'm coming to you. Isn't that amazing? Yes? No? Yeah? You tracking with me? Am I going too fast? Isn't that amazing? That God would come to us this way. He died for us since he rose from the dead, conquering the wages of sin, which was death, defeating sin. Now, here's the thing. As you're with me this morning, um, we have VBS next week, right? So you're going to do an action with me. We're going to put our theology caps on. Ready? One, two, three. Put it on. All right. I'm going to throw a bunch of big words at you. I love big words because they're fun. And sometimes they're crazy, but you'll get it. Trust me. 
The first word is this, propitiation. Say that with me. Propitiation. What on earth is that? Propitiation is this crazy word that we use in, in theology. It's called the wrath of God. And what that is, again, is that God is so holy and so just that when he deals with sin, he destroys sin. And what that means for us is that Christ has taken the propitiation for you and for me. That Christ on his cross took the wrath of God upon himself and dealt with it for us on our behalf. This is the great theology of propitiation. The second word that I want you to say with me is this, imputation. We get an imputation. We get something imprinted on us. And we get to imprint something else. So imputation is this, is that you and I, all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin, all of that yuck, dirt, gross garbage, all of that stuff, we put that on Christ. We impute that on Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, that's what he took. He took that. But we get this special double imputation, is what it's called. That not only did we put all our unrighteousness on Christ, Christ put all of his righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness, he put that on us. That is a great transaction, isn't it? Better than Rogers, correct? (laughs) That is one great transaction that we get to be a part of. And then on top of all that, I'm going to give you three simple words, these three wonderful words. I love them. They're in my signature. If you get an email from me from my work, it says this, justice, grace, and mercy. Justice, grace, and mercy. Justice is you and I, we get what we deserve. We get what we deserve. We get what we deserve. We love justice. We long for justice, as long as it's not just for me. I hope that you all get what you deserve is what we always say. But when it comes to me, eh, not so much. Right? Not so much. We long for justice. We hope that people get what they deserve, and but not for me. Oftentimes, how many how many have ever come across the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? Why? Because we believe in justice. We believe that somehow we deserve something. We get what we deserve. The second word there is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. And the third word there, grace. This is the wonderful word, grace. Is that you get what you do not deserve. You get what you do not deserve. Now, confession time. How many of you have ever gotten a traffic ticket? All right. You know, you're driving along. You've, uh, you've gone a little too fast. And, you know, police car pulls you over. He knocks on the window. Hey, officer. And he looks at you and he says, all right, what happened? I was going too fast. Officer says, justice. Justice is, here's your ticket. Hey, officer. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, I've never sped before. I've never gotten a ticket. I've never done it. This is the first time. It doesn't matter. Justice. You get what you deserve. Here's your ticket. Mercy is when the cop knocks on your window and says, hey, you're going too fast. Sorry, officer. I didn't understand. I didn't realize, you know, I won't, ha- won't happen again. And he says to you, all right, I'll let you off with a warning. You were supposed to get a ticket. You deserve to get a ticket, but you don't get the ticket. You don't get what you, what you deserve. But man, has an officer ever done this to you? Knocks on the window. Hey, you're going too fast. Sorry, officer. Didn't realize. My bad. It won't happen again. Hey, I'll let you off with a warning. But hey, here's a $15 gift card to Tim Hortons. Go treat yourself to coffee. And you'd be like, what is going on? I didn't get what I deserved, but then I got something I didn't deserve. 
Wouldn't that be a great cop? <laughs> Why do we pulled over that? I got something I didn't deserve. And here's the thing. In our day and age, we actually struggle a lot with this idea of grace, not getting, getting what I do not deserve. A lot of people are skeptical about grace. Are you sure? It's too good to be true. Really? And so when we talk about the idea of someone being saved, when we talk about the idea of us having salvation, the good news is this, is that you and I don't have to do anything. We can't earn our way to God. We can't do enough good things to get our way to God. We can't do any of that stuff. We don't earn our way. We don't earn our way to God, to a relationship with God. We don't earn our way to heaven or eternity. We get everything by grace, by grace through faith. And much like the gift card, you have to just simply take it and receive it. And sometimes that feels a little bit awkward. It's given to us. And you know what I really, really marvel at when I think about all this stuff when it comes to this? That Christ on the cross dealt with our sin. And when he dealt with our sin, he dealt with all of our past sin. Get it? He dealt with all of our present sin. But man, oh man, he also dealt with all of your future sin. Our sin dealt with past, present, future, all dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. So what then does it mean for us to be saved? So a reminder is this, a saving grace is a changing grace. All right, you're still with me. So what does it mean for us to be saved? Oftentimes, when we talk about being saved, we reduce it down to this idea of, you know, receive Jesus, acknowledge Jesus into your heart, welcome Jesus into your heart, and you can go to heaven. And it, while I don't want to discredit that, that's not enough of what it means to be saved. That's just, that's just sort of scratching the surface, if you will. It's not about just accepting Jesus in your heart and getting your insurance ticket to heaven. It's this idea beyond that. The idea of salvation is that we have been rescued from sin. That the presence and power of sin is no more in our life. And we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. It has been freely given to you and to me. Now, if I'm saved, why do I still have an issue with sin? So can you be a Christian and continually live a sinful life? And remember, a saving grace is a? Okay. So as Christians, I don't want us to minimize sin. And at the same time, now that we're all on the same page, there are also people who don't know this. And we want to make sure that others can hear this too. So then how then shall we live? Can I, how, how can I know I'm saved if I have all this sin? And here's the thing. We try to live as good as we can. And so some of us, we take this wonderful news of salvation. We take this wonderful news of the good news of Jesus. We start to live it out and we receive it with great joy. And we start going, we start living. We're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. And all of a sudden, those little things start to creep back in our lives. And you're like, oh, and you feel defeated. You feel broken. You're like, oh, no, no. What am I doing? Oh, no, I'm not sure. Am I I really? Is it? What what, what, what do I do now? And we start walking around as defeated. And we may even walk away. And then there's another point in which some of us, 
We're, you know, yeah, I received this message. Wonderful. And I'm on track. I'm doing great things. I'm serving God. I'm loving God. I'm loving Jesus. I'm loving others. And I start to get bigger and bigger and greater and greater at that. To the point that it's like a weight loss commercial in which someone says to you, hey, I lost weight this way. You need to do what I do. And we start to develop this thing called pride. And we start to develop this idea of pride. And we say, hey, if you follow Jesus the way I follow Jesus, then you will be like Jesus, more like Jesus, like me. And all of a sudden, we start to implement all these rules and regulations in other people's lives. And it becomes something completely Pharisaic that Jesus was condemning. So how do we live in this tension from not getting too overwhelmed with our sin and not becoming too arrogant in our holiness? And that's the tension we find ourselves in this morning. So my hope is that we would see the depth of what Jesus has done, that we would grow to despise our own sin, but accept the gift of God that he's given us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 2 says it this way. He says, um, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work with those who are disobedient. I kind of like uh, Eugene Peters, Peterson's way of saying it. He says, You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. And this is the dynamic that we look at sin nostalgically at times, and we look at what the world gets to do, and we're wondering. So now all this, I've hopefully done my part to set you up for Romans 6. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you, open your Bible, turn it on, open it up. Romans chapter 6. Now as we start here, Romans 6, you're like, what? We're starting now? Yeah. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 is, is a great passage that we're going to look at. But let me tell you, Romans was written by Paul, and he's writing this letter from the city of Corinth to the Roman Christians who he's never met yet. And he's writing this letter to the, a bunch of people, and he's talking about the message of salvation. Now, while he's in Corinth, Paul says, I have one message to preach, and that's Christ crucified, if you look in 1 Corinthians. And that same message of the power of the cross is what he talks about in Romans. So if you ever want to study Romans, let me start you off with this. Romans chapter 1 through 5 is this idea of what's called justification. Say that with me justification. And so this is how the cross, the work of Christ, and how we are justified before God. Now, what is justification and justified? It's just simply pull it apart. And it's like this. God deals with me just if I'd never sinned. Get it? Justified. God will deal with me in a way just as if I have never sinned. And so Paul's talking about this idea of justification. And in this passage here in Romans 6, he begins to change his thinking to this word called sanctification. Say that with me, sanctification. And sanctification has everything to do with holiness and what it means for us to be holy. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about this word. The idea of holiness is not that you are better than anyone else. The idea of holiness is that we are set apart by God for God to do what God wants. Get it? It's not, oh, I'm better than you. Some people take holiness to do that. Oh, look at you sinners over there. If you became more like me, you would know. Right? Sanctification has everything to do with being set free, set apart, and being useful for God's purpose. And so, what is the tool in which you get justified and sanctified? It's the cross. It's the cross. It's not you or your intellect. It's not me and my abilities. It's the cross. It's always the cross. 
And so in Romans 5, Paul talks about this idea of being free from the penalty of sin. And then in Romans 6, he starts to go on and talk about how to be free from the power of sin. And then in Romans 7, he talks about how to be free from the preoccupation with sin. And in Romans 8, he gets to talk about being free from the presence of sin one day. And all of that under the tool, this one tool, the cross. The cross. You tracking with me still? All right. Now, after all that, a saving grace is a changing grace. So we talk a lot about grace and the power of grace, and it's amazing. We sing about amazing grace, right? And what is it, and how does it work? So if you have your Bible, I'm going to start us uh, backtrack a little bit. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 to 21 says this. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also great grace might reign throughout righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's where Paul is kind of setting us up. He says, listen, you know, as sin increases, grace increases more. We kind of sang that this morning, right? Where there is sin, mercy is more. Use the wrong word. You know, grace is more, right? So that's the idea. And so Paul's setting us up to hear this. And then he starts then in, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, pause there for a minute. Here's Paul's logical argument. So, as sin increases, grace increases more. So then, people will ask the question. You and I will ask the question. So if I keep on sinning, doesn't there get more grace? Man, if we could. And Paul's saying, this is a logical thought. I'm anticipating your response. So his response is in verse 2. In the NIV it says, by no means, or certainly not, or in the Queen's English, we say, are you mad? Don't you love that? Are you mad? Like, are you kidding me? Why would you think that? Some people with this idea of grace, we fall on this other extreme that believes license to sin. Oh, I'm covered by grace. I can just go and do that. Oh, I'm covered by grace. Just go and do that. Oh, I'm covered by grace. No, no, no. By no means. Certainly not. Are you mad? (laughs) And so here we have Paul just laying it out for us, this logic about what it means for us to be saved. So, if we are saved, our sins are forgiven, but sin is not gone. Our sins are forgiven, but sin is not gone. And how does that work? And here's where Paul will start to lay it out for us. A bit of it is this. The very fact that sin has been forgiven, that internal, our soul stuff, our internal stuff, that, that spirit stuff, that's been forgiven. It's worked out. It's on the cross. It's dealt with. The problem is the container that holds this stuff, which is our still physical bodies that holds this stuff, is still corrupted, is still messed up. And so that's why you and I, as Christians, we still struggle with sin. The body is still not redeemed. It's corrupted. Our spirit has been redeemed, uh, but the body, the container, has not. And so we need to start thinking about what it means for us to identify with Christ. And so this is where Paul sets us up. He says, know this, know this, and know this. He says it in verse 3, in verse 6, and in verse 9. Or he says, don't you know or know? Get to know this. So know this, right? 
And so what we're going to explore a bit is what Paul says is something that we need to know, and then later on something that we need we get to say, and then something we need to do. You still tracking? So here's verse 3. He says, know this then. So in verse 3 he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there's the first thing. We need to know this, to be baptized in Christ's death. A few weeks ago at this church, we celebrated baptisms. And, you know, we, the, the image of baptism is a wonderful image, right? You know, you're going down into the water, and what are we saying? We're, we're dying to ourselves. We're dying to that old way of living. And in fact, if Richard held you long enough, you would die, right? Like, we're dying to self. And our identity now is, our, we've, we're identifying with Christ. As Christ died, we've died. And as Christ rose... Out of the water, we rose. As Christ rose from the dead, we rise out of the water. Our identification now is with Christ. See, the, the only way a slave could have been free was through death. They, there was no other way. And we were slaves to sin. The Israelites, the only way to escape slavery of captivity in Egypt was to be dead. And we are slaves to sin. The only way to escape the slavery of sin is death. And we have that in Christ. We are identified with Christ's death. So he says, know that. We need to know that. And we have newness of life. We have a new life. Know that. In verse 6 then, he says this way again. He says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should be no longer slaves to sin. When Christ died, our old life died because we have identified with that. It's a wonderful mystery. But here's the thing, we know that it's not, it's not fully done away with here. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And there's, a, there's this idea then that goes with this. That though we've died to sin, and we're identified with that, why do we still have sin? Well, here's the difference now. You and I, and your scriptures will always keep pointing it back to this, is that we are no longer ruled by sin. It's done away with. What that means there is the idea is that it's, it's rendered powerless. It's paralyzed. It no longer, sin no longer has power over you and over me. It's also a business term. It's actually also a business term that says out of business. You know when you go to a restaurant, your favorite restaurant, and you get satisfaction from eating your favorite meal? When you go to that restaurant and it says out of business, you no longer can get that satisfaction from that meal. Correct? Because it's gone. Sin will no longer give you satisfaction because it's rendered powerless. It has no more power over you and over me. So why do I still give in to sin? Well, why? Because we choose to. But the reality is this now. You and I, before Christ, we had no other option but to follow in sin. But when you have identified yourself with Christ, sin no longer has power over you. We can say no. Sin can yell, it can scream, it can tempt, it can promote itself, but we now, because of Christ, we can have the power to say no. It is no longer holding us captive. It is no longer our hostage taker. We are free. We can choose to go back to the hostage taker, and some of us want to, but we have been given absolute freedom from that. 
So in verse 9, when he continues to say, Know this then, for know, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. This is a done deal. Christ died once and once for all. It's done. The forgiveness of sin, the freedom from sin, it's died. It's crucified. You know, um, in Galatians 2.20, it talks about the idea of crucifying oneself, uh, uh, living a crucified life. Have you ever really pictured crucifixion? I mean, it's not the most beautiful picture. It's really gross and and distorted. But when we think of it, sometimes we think, I have to crucify myself to follow Christ. And it's really not that notion. It's not really scriptural in that way. We have to believe that Christ has been crucified for us. Because think about it. Can you crucify yourself? Let me show you. Right? Right? Can't do it. Right? That's why he says we need to know that. It's not about what you can do. And it's not about what I can do. It's about what Christ has already done. Know that, he says. And so we need to know that it's been dealt with once for all, and, and, and we can move forward from that. And at the, the old nature, the old self, has no power over ourself now. It cannot make you. We choose to, but it cannot have power over us. So those are the things that we're supposed to know. In verse 11, he says this then. He continues on in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the thing that he says, something we get to say. Something we get to say. Sin no longer reigns over us. Sin no longer has mastery over us. But he uses this word count. And it's, like, it's an accounting term. Any accountants in here? No? Oh, there's one. All right, so it's an accounting term. He says, add it all up. Add it all up and make the declaration. What is the end result? Add it all up. Is it for profit or, ne- or, or gain? Or is it loss? Add it all up and make the declaration. What is the declaration? Here's the declaration. We know now that we are alive to God, dead to sin. That's what we get to say. Alive to God, dead to sin. Add it up. Make the conclusion. Make your calculations. Declare it. I don't have to give in to this sin anymore. It has no power over me. You're dead to me. Have you ever had a, you know, a family member say, you're dead to me? I mean, you're not physically dead to them, but they treat you like you no longer exist, right? That's what we do with sin. We're, it's dead. Sin, you are dead to me. That's what we get to say. It's like Taylor Swift. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. Right? You, all, you like Taylor Swift, I guess? Yeah. But it's not based on my discipline. It's not based on my strength. It's not based on my intellect. It's Christ and Christ alone. That we get to say this. So next time sin comes knocking on your door, you're dead to me. You have no power over me. I can say no. Next time when sin starts creeping on the computer and you're, the mouse is starting to hover a bit, no, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. The next time someone starts gossiping and you want to open your mouth to join in, no, 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 you're dead to me. I get to say that. The last thing is in verse 13 here. It says, do not offer any of any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. This is something we get to do. Something we get to do. 
He says, don't, don't yield anymore to sin. Don't, don't live anymore to sin. Don't, don't live for it. Don't, don't go for it. But yield to God. Live for God. Don't live for sin. Live for God. And if you obsessively live for God, you find that you sin less. Now, here's the reality is that, again, we, we all deal with sin. And it's not the fact that we would become sinless uh, immediately, but we do uh, get on track to sin less. We're not sinless, but we get to be on track to sin less. That we, that we would yield our lives to God, not to sin anymore. We would use our life as an instrument for righteousness because sin no longer dominates our life. How many of you have ever had on January 1st your wonderful New Year's resolution? And you're all excited about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to make a plan for this and that. And by January 2nd, you're like, whoops, my bad, right? It's not that. We're not talking about that. This is something greater, something bigger. Because it's not the effort about us. It's what Christ has already done. A saving grace is a changing grace. So how can I be saved if I have all this sin? The answer is yes. You can be saved even with all this sin. Because a saving grace is indeed a changing grace. That we would become more and more like the one who saved us. But yes, we will still struggle with sin. It's still there. But it no longer has power over us. But we can say no. We don't have to yield to it. We can use our life as an instrument for God's righteousness. I'm going to invite the, uh, the music team to come back up here as we kind of start closing. I just want to invite you to consider a few things uh, as, we, as we leave this space, before we leave this space here. The first is this, is that this message of saving grace, it's a wonderful, important message. And there are some of you in this room, maybe you've never heard of it. And those of you online, maybe you've never heard this message. And if that's you, we, I want you to know this message importantly. And I want you to take it to heart. And I want you to explore and take the opportunity to, to, to draw closer to God as a result. And maybe God is calling you today, whether you're here in person or online, that God is calling you to a relationship with him. To finally say yes to God and no to sin. And so maybe you grew up in church or maybe... Um, you've just come, maybe you're just checking us out online. The reality is that we have an opportunity to come into a relationship with Christ Jesus who's dealt with our sin. So the invitation is that you would receive Christ, that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. For those of you who call yourselves, you know, Christians and following followers of Jesus Christ, again, one of the things is that we would know the power of sin has been broken that we claim that as truth and we practice that as truth today. That you don't have to give in to sin. You are saved, but it doesn't have power over you and over me anymore. That we would know and practice the power of the cross. The third thing is this. What do you do about those hidden sins? Or what do I do about those sins that are highly addiction-oriented sins. I want to remind you again, the power of the cross has broken that. It has broken that. It has no authority and no power over you if you've claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But maybe what needs to happen there is just other people to help you along. So if you have a hidden sin or you have an addiction sin, things like gambling or alcoholism or pornography, you have a hidden sin that you don't want anyone to know about. Sometimes the first step is really talking to someone about it. And you can do that at our prayer corner. 
Or you could do that by you know, reaching out to one of your pastors, or your elders, or your deacons here, or a friend who brought you here. So don't let that fester. It's been broken. You don't have to follow it. You don't have to yield to it. But maybe you just need a faith community to walk alongside you for that, to find some prayer, to find some support, and to find some accountability. But the last thing is this. Uh, I'm sure that this will happen in your life and in your week. There will be somebody who needs to hear this truth and this message. There are people out there constantly trying to make it up to God. There are people who are just trying to live a good life, trying to find their way to God. There are people who are trying to figure out, why am I so messed up? And why can't I get it together? And the reality is, the answer is Jesus. And you and I will have the privilege this week that you will encounter someone in your family, in your places of work, online, at the grocery store, in a restaurant. You will have an opportunity for someone to hear that message. And so may I encourage you to share that message. Because you know what? There are people looking and there is absolutely nothing else in this world that gives this answer. No human thought, no human philosophy, no other religion, no other thing out there gives this answer. This wonderful answer of amazing grace. That a saving grace is a changing grace. So let me pray for us as we close off here this morning. God, we thank you for this amazing grace that you've given us. It is a a wonderful saving grace. And we know that it's changing us. That as we continue on in our discipleship with you, we would not be sinless, but we would indeed sin less. Give us the Spirit of God to help us to not yield no longer to sin, but yield more to be God's instruments of righteousness. I pray for anyone here today that, whether online or in person, that needs to, to put their trust in Jesus today. If that's you, I just want to invite you to pray uh, this prayer. You could pray it along, all of us here together at the same time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying on a cross for my sin. Thank you for taking all my sin, past, present, and future. I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you. I don't want sin to rule over me anymore. I would rather have you rule over me. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's you, I just want to just encourage you to talk to someone about that. Whether someone brought you here or if you're online, reach out at prayers at mcbc.com uh, or org, whatever it is. Um, or talk to someone here at the prayer corner. Uh, for those of you struggling, I ask that you would just also find that con- conversation with someone. So Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you continue to do through your amazing saving grace that is a changing grace. And all God's people said, Amen.